0: It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here and feel like it too. There's some weeks where I'm sitting over there and the praise and worship and the team is leading us to the throne room and I'm like, man, I should just stay sat down and we just keep on singing, you know, so I don't need an amen from that, Doyle. I'm right here. Okay, no, but it does feel like that. It's good to be together this morning and my heart's full of joy just uh, singing with you. So we've just left the November, month of November, and the Thanksgiving holiday season, and now we turn our attention to December, and we're building up to Christmas. As I sat down this year, just thinking about what we might focus on this December, I reread all of the different accounts in the Bible of the the birth story, the, the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. And I did that just to see, I've read it many, many times. But, you know, just a point of reference for you on Bible reading practice, I was just going to see if anything else, something new, jumped off of the page. I don't know if you've had this experience. I hope you have. But it's one of the reasons we need to be lifelong Bible readers. Because, well, for one thing, it says it's living and active. And one of the ways I think it's living and active is we're different every time we read it. Like, I'm different than a year ago. I'm different than five years ago. I'm very different than 10 years ago. And so I might, the Spirit might just give me an angle that I've never looked at before. So I did that, and it I, I, I got to focusing on the characters around the story of the birth story, the other characters. That's not new for me, ironically. I've done that in the past, and, and I've done lessons like looking at their reaction To this, what would end up being this world shaking event? What was their reaction to the story, the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus? And so I remember doing that. I went back and looked and saw specifically what I used them for was to, uh, for us to examine how they received and embraced the gift in that. Birth of the baby, if there were ever early adopters of anything, these were the early adopters. They believed and received that that wasn 't just the birth of a baby. there was more packed into it, and I remember doing a study with of Mary and how she believed and received the news when she got it. That was so significant. Her husband, Joseph, he didn't at first. It was a little out of his box, but he eventually adjusted to it. I, I found a lesson where we looked at some obscure characters as well, like the priest Simeon in the temple. If you remember him, he was there when, when Joseph and Mary took their baby for a baby blessing in the temple, and he was there. And he just said, I can die now, because he was told by the Holy Spirit that, He wouldn't die until he laid eyes on the coming Jewish Messiah. There was another elderly lady there named Anna that she had decided when she became a widow, she just dedicated her life to prayer and praise, just to go to the temple. And she spent all day, every day there, evidently. But she's the first one that recognized Jesus and then started telling others. Like she's literally, our next year's theme is sharing Jesus, right? And it hit me that she was the first one that we have a record of, that recognized Jesus and started telling others. Guess who that is? Guess who that is? We did a study of the the Magi from the East. We call them the wise men. The Bible doesn't call them the wise men. That was a fun study, though. Well, why did we call them wise? I enjoyed kind of looking at it from that angle. So I'm, I'm sitting there rereading, and I'm telling you all this to say, I, I've done all of these characters. I can't find any more characters unless I go, like, to the animals, like the birth of Jesus through the eyes of a donkey, you know, or... How, why am I thinking of this? Why isn't something else jumping off the page? Well, specifically, remember, I used these characters. I was looking for ones that we could use as examples of how they receive, believed and received the gift and how we can use them as models for how we want to believe and receive. I did find some other characters on Second Glance. But they didn't believe and receive it. They missed it. These characters I've not preached on. I haven't preached on these guys that that missed it, they missed Christmas. And so I thought maybe we can use them as an example of what how we don't want to behave as we reflect on Jesus. Um, so this year, I'm gonna take a look at a few of the background characters in the Christmas story who totally missed it and maybe speculate a little based on what we do have in scripture and what we know of human nature and maybe historically a little bit today. Uh, why they missed it and let them serve as a reflective moment for us for the month of December each week. How for the same reasons, the same, because I have reflected on it already and the same reasons that they missed the first Christmas can easily be reasons that we miss Christ in our life and in our continuing life. So that's kind of what I'm going to approach for this December. I'm excited about it. And have you ever noticed that we have movies? We have movies that like resonate with all the best movies. You find the narratives in Scripture. I've noticed that. Like it's all of the great epic stories reflect the narrative in Scripture. John Eldridge, who pointed that out to me. So I was thinking about it again. We have tons of movies about characters who missed Christmas. They missed the spirit of Christmas. Have you thought about this? Like one of the most famous is The Grinch, right? I mean the Grinch totally missed it. He totally misses it. And not only does he miss it, he's angry that anybody else has it and the whole movie is about him trying to steal the meaningfulness of Christmas. Elf, Elf is a story that makes our annual has always made our annual watch party with our family for some reason. So I'm sick of it, but it is it does have that with a grumpy dad, you know, Buddy's dad, and he has to kind of soften, and he, he didn't really have that spirit. Santa Claus, those those movies have that element in it. Of course, the famous The Christmas Carol. There are like 30 different remakes of The Christmas Carol. That's the character Scrooge. Scrooge is such a famous person that missed the spirit of Christmas. And, I mean, that movie goes to great pain, sends ghosts from past, future, just to get him to try to get it because he's missing it. And so we use that word as a noun to describe people who are grumpy, right? You're such a Scrooge. And then, of course, there's the classics that have stood the test of time. It's a Wonderful Life. The other one that was made right here in Amarillo, Miracle on 34th and Bell Street. You've seen that one? That was, that's famous, stood the test of time. Anyway, they all depict the tragedy, the tragedy of someone missing the significance of Christmas. And the the authors of these movies, or the writers of these movies, they're brilliant. We're on the edge of our seat. We either, well, we usually hate them at some point in the movie. That's But we can see it clearly. We can see what they're missing, why they're missing it, what they need to do to overcome that. And most of these movies end with them overcoming that, with them softening, with them learning, with them having a breakthrough. And then we just get about 10 minutes, maybe. Five or 10 minutes of them. And we just are like so glad that they got it. So um, in these characters, in these stories, they don't end up getting it usually. There's a couple, but most of these don't get it in Scripture. We may not like the characters in this story because of that. They're not examples of how we should consider, how we should believe and receive the, the message in the Christmas story, but they can serve as a reflection of what we do not want to happen to us. So the first character I want to examine today is King Herod. So a little background stuff I found on King Herod. He was, you may already know, he, he was a ruthless, cold-blooded ruler. He was not a good man. Rome allowed him to continue ruling over there when they took over, because he was so wealthy and because he was efficient at collecting taxes and delivering that faithfully to Rome. They didn't really like him but but they let him reign. So early in his reign he had all of there's a group called the Hasmonians. The Hasmoneans were the descendants of the Maccabees. Between the Old and New Testament there's a few hundred years and you know Greece had occupied Jerusalem and, but there was this one time where some Jewish folks revolted. And, and they won. They kicked out these overlords out of Jerusalem. And it was the Maccabean revolt, if you've heard of this. So they, they kind of won. They had reign over Jerusalem there for a little bit. And it, of course, Romans eventually came in and took that back and over. So the Hasmoneans were the group that, that identified those that had this success in this rebellion. So when Herod became king over Jerusalem, he killed all them. He just killed them all. He's like, it's in their genes. I don't want any rebellion. I'm in charge. And so he just killed them. He was ruthless. He also, Herod had 10 wives and 12 children. So one of his wives had a brother who was the high priest there in Jerusalem for a season. And because he could see a pathway of challenge through that high priest, from the religious Jews to his power, he had his brother in law killed. And for good measure, his sister, which was his wife, he had them killed. As two of those 12 boys, <clears throat> two of the 12 kids were boys, they were the oldest. When they got old enough um, for him to feel threatened by them, he killed them. He killed his two oldest sons. Why? Because he felt threatened that his power could be taken over he valued his power 5 days before his his death he's on his deathbed he knows he's dying the third son the one that was had become an adult he had him killed because he thought he was trying to get his power he wanted to rule every single day of his life till his life was over that is some strong commitment to doing that. So he valued his power and he also valued the esteem that he felt entitled to because of his position from the Jewish people as the king of the Jews. That's what he was declared, the king of the Jews. And so when as he was approaching his death, one of his last things was to have a bunch of the citizens in Jerusalem that were well loved and respected, just recognized Jewish citizens arrested. He had them arrested and and he declared that he wanted, on the day of his death, all of those arrested citizens killed. And the reason he wanted that is because he had a moment of clarity. No one is going to be sad I died. And so he said this, The people will not weep when I die, but they should be weeping. So I will give them reason to weep on the day I die. So this backdrop hopefully helps explain the reaction of Herod when the Magi came from the east that Braylon and Becca read to us. So I'm gonna repeat the last thing that they read about that, but then you'll notice it goes on and it just gets worse, just to give us the, the text about Herod. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So here's the familiar, what we call the beautiful part. After they, heard, after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. Now, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old or under, just to cover his basis. So, just to put in period on the end of the sentence of his life and his role in the story, in verse 19 it says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So, why? Why did Herod miss it? I mean, This world-changing, epic event was happening right under his nose, right under his charge, and he missed it. Why did he miss it? We know it's because he wanted to rule. He wanted to rule his own life. He wanted to keep his power. And this is where, if you'll lay yourself, we can resonate with Herod. We can relate to Herod, can't we? Not like him. I don't know any. I haven't met anyone ever that's killed their own firstborn kids so that they can maintain their power and their sovereignty and their say. But we're just using him as a scriptural, extreme, hyperbolic example of something that's pretty common in all of us. I know it's common in me. We want control over our own lives. We want to say what it is we will do. We want to say where it is we will go. We want to say when, who we will be, what priorities are important, and what should be most important, who it is we will or should forgive or not forgive. We want to decide what behavior or activity is moral or not. We want to decide what's wise or not, what's best or not. We want to decide. We want to decide what's godly or not, what should be offensive to others or not, or to ourselves, what is righteous or not, what is loving or not. We want control. That word, control, that, it has a negative connotation these days when used in this way, doesn't it? Like, oh, he is so or control- She is so controlling. When we, when we hear that, we shudder a little. It doesn't sound favorable. It doesn't sound great, And so we don't like using that word. So we might change it to something that we can live with, that we think is good. And that word is freedom. Freedom. I want my freedom. That's always good, right? Freedom's always good. It sounds like freedom is a good word and properly understood. It is something that we want. It's something Jesus came to give as we'll look at. But if we're not careful, our flesh will hijack that word and will use it kind of as a Trojan horse to justify control rather than enjoy freedom in a kingdom way. Freedom, if it's defined as your right to be selfish, or even softer, self-centered. If you use the word freedom as your right to be self-centered, to maintain power, to do what you want If you are putting yourself as the center of gravity in making your decisions. You have the freedom to do that. And that sounds right. Sounds like what many in our country fought and died for. For you to have the freedom. It sounds right. But we got to be careful as Christians. What we mean by it. We wouldn't argue for a minute using that word in the negative way with Herod right? That what he was doing was to maintain his own freedom, to have say, to have power. He was just protecting his freedom to do what he wanted to do. Yet we can look at that. He wouldn't, just like in the movies, he wouldn't have seen it, but we from the outside can. And so when we look in the mirror, we need to realize we may not see it, but we need to reflect on it. I want to use Herod to reflect on it. Words do matter, but what we attribute as the meaning of those words matters more. More. The, that's, that's what matters. Ironically, this word is, like I said, is precisely what Jesus said, was one of his main themes of why he was born into this world. He says it in Luke chapter 4 where he goes into another synagogue and he's talking and he pulls out an old scroll from the old testament and which was just their bible at the time and he reads it and it's a prophetic word about the coming messiah only he reads it with authority like it's about him and one of the things he says in luke 4 is he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prince prisoners this is one of his big deals he's trying to free us and not just literal prisoners but from every kind of prison we can find ourselves in as human beings and Paul understood this so clearly in his study and reflection and then in his advancement of the kingdom that when he says it, he, he, he he's like redundant in how he say, uses the word twice in Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You've been freed. Why? To be free. Freedom is, it's the right word, properly understood. But we, especially in our culture, in the United States of America, that is all about freedom, we need to be careful when we use the right word, but it starts infringing, and we become a little bit like Herod. We want to hang on to our lives, to our say, and we don't want to surrender it to God. Herod decided to unthinkingly define freedom as freedom to control as much as he can, and do whatever he himself wants instead of the kingdom definition. And that's freedom from himself and freedom to do good and to love and to to be a life giver and freedom from everything that would hinder us from that. It strikes me to think about how different this whole story would have been if Herod didn't miss it. Like, think about it. What if he didn't miss it? He knew enough to know that it was a prophetic thing of the Jews. He knew enough. What if he didn't miss it? It would have been so much different. Just like us, Jesus represented everything Herod needed at a deep heart level. It would have been infringed on how he operated, yeah. But it was everything he needed to be truly blessed I mean, to think about the life of ultimate power. That's what he had. Ultimate wealth, ultimate power. I heard a, a guy talking about how rich Herod was because he had a, this is a little wonky, but he had this uh, monopoly on the spice trade back then. He, and, and this guy said, imagine if one country, one man, had a handle on the whole oil trade in the whole earth. How rich would that person be? That was King Herod. He said, Bill Gates would be doing his lawn he is so wealthy. So to be that, have that much power, and yet five days before you die, you decide to kill your son. That's a sad, sad life. And Jesus was right there. It strikes me that outwardly, Herod did, if you you think about it, he did a bunch of things outwardly. He did it right. Right. Like, outwardly. We already know his heart, so it'll be hard to see it like this. But just look superficially. These strangers come through town, and he offers hospitality. He sees there's something significant that's brought them to town. So he's curious. He asks what it was. He then hears a version of the good news. There's this star. We're discerning that the the good news is happening. The the, the king is coming, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. We're wondering where he is. He then does his version of Bible study. He calls the Bible scholars and says, hey, hey, where does the Bible say that the Messiah is going to be born? Finds out it's Bethlehem. Outwardly, he's doing this thing right. He even outwardly proclaimed the right reaction He says, hey, I want to worship him too. But we know it wasn't in his heart. Even those right things were just an act to do what he was really trying to do, to get rid of Jesus's presence in his life because he represented a threat to his life, how he wants it, his power, because he wanted to hang on to power, to remain the king, of his own existence, as much as possible, other people's too. So today, I just want us to be careful. Outwardly, we may be doing the right things, right? We may be doing the right things outwardly in response to who Jesus is in our lives and in our outward practices, but it's worth taking the inward look, and that's what I want us to do today. Just to See, is there any part of our life where we're actually trying to control Jesus? We're doing this as cover. Maybe not even for others to impress us, but for ourselves. To feel like I'm a fully devoted follower of Christ. And we want to keep Jesus, we want to run him off to our Egypt. Just, you know, just put him in our Egypt over there. Just a safe, maybe we can't totally kill him, but... And we don't even want to maybe, but we want him a safe distance from our circle of influence, from being an influence on us. Keep him away from those areas of our lives that we just don't want light shed on it. We don't want that. Here's the question for this week as we approach Christmas and what it means. Is your life surrendered to God? It's a big question. And when I first asked it like this of myself, I generally, you know, the major theme, yes, yes. So I I have a follow-up question. Is every part of your life surrendered to God? That one I had to say, no. Do you, like Herod, say you want to worship Jesus, but deep down your heart knows it's hanging on to something? It's hanging on to some area of power. Maybe it's some sin. Maybe it's some priority. Doesn't fit with kingdom priorities, but you can't, don't want to let go of. Maybe it's, I love Jesus, but I love money too. Maybe it's comfort. You know, I want to serve Jesus, but there's a limit to how uncomfortable I feel like I'll ever go. I don't know what it is, there's usually something in all of our lives. And if when you think of Christmas, the real meaning, the Emmanuel, that's the, that's the Christmas name of Jesus. It's God with us, you know? We always think in terms of we're invited to God, and that leaves some control to me whether I accept the invitation or not. But if God's coming to with us, he's coming into my house, when you picture that, when you picture him coming to you, and there's any sense of, like, defensiveness. When you, when you hear these questions, the, the second question in particular, is every part of your life surrendered to God? And there's just a little bit of defensiveness. You need to be careful. You are in danger, if that's the case, of missing Jesus in the same way that Herod did. But here's the good news. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. Jesus came to proclaim freedom from that. It's never too late. It's always time, and there's always other layers of sacrifice. We call it that. But when we sacrifice our own flesh, our own control, and we truly give control to someone as trustworthy as a loving God, that is when life works best. That is our faith. That's what we believe in faith. And so many of you are so rich with stories about this that I can't can't hardly doubt it anymore because I've gotten to hear it so many times and experiencing it in good measure too. So what is it? Be brave here. We should be brave here this morning. What category of your life do you feel is unsurrendered to God that you need to protect from the living gaze of God with us, of the coming Jesus? I'm gonna ask our elders and ministers and their spouses, go and move around the room here and the praise team to come on up here. As we finish, this this made me think of one other event in Jesus' life. It was when uh, Satan was tempting Jesus. And it occurred to me that one of the ways that Satan tempted Jesus was, he said, here, I'll gladly give you all that I have, Jesus. This is what Satan says. I'll give you all that I have if you'll just bow down to me. Isn't that interesting? The first part's right. We're supposed to give Jesus all that we have. But Satan said, sure, you can have it all if you'll bow down to me. And Jesus just can't do that because his invitation to us is, I will gladly give you all that I have if you'll bow down to me. That's the call. That's what Herod missed. And we don't want to miss it. So let's stand And let's sing and praise God and let's consider what it is we need to let go of.